And I, at the time, was an opposition MLA and I represented uh, my party. And I asked a question. I said, you say that your goals are transparency, equity and efficiency. Transparency is pretty obvious, there's no... But equity and efficiency can be defined many different ways. And let me just, uh, to tip off the point that you started, successive finance commissions for the last five or six times have kept on reducing the allocation, the devolution to states like Tamil Nadu. In Tamil Nadu in particular, but states like Tamil Nadu. So I made the point, I said, in a federal setup, in a system, we assume infinite movement of labor, you know, goods, etc., uh, or, or relatively frictionless movement of all of this. And so if you have a transfer mechanism like the Finance Commission, where you take money from a relatively well-to-do state and you give it, at least on a per capita basis, to a much less well-to-do state, that's how the system is supposed to work, no problem. But if I look everywhere around the world in such systems, such transfers reduce inequality and close the gap. So if I look at China, where the coastal provinces are substantially economically more active than the hinterland, transfers happen and the gap narrows. If I look at the European Union, where the Western European countries were substantially better off than Portugal or Italy or Greece, and the, the transfers happened and the gap narrowed. If I look at the United States, where the New York, California, the coastal states are significantly better off than the interior states, transfers happen and the gap narrows. But here we have, you know, 25 or 30 years of finance commissions. You've kept on transferring wealth from the better states to the poorer states. Not only has the gap not narrowed, not only has it stayed stable, but the gap has widened and the gap has widened in an accelerated manner. The gap is getting worse and worse. So if the definition of efficiency is that you put the money to work in a way that improves people's lives, especially at the weaker end of the spectrum, then this whole process has been a failure, utter failure. So the question arises, what is being done right in some of these states where they keep on climbing? And what is being done wrong in these states where, despite net transfers, they are not able to climb? And so I said, many of these variables that you use to do the allocation, the gap and the population and the green cover and this and that, those are not means to an end. If the end is economic development, then you are not using interim measures that really make a difference. I would suggest the extent to which women are empowered, the percentage of girls that are in school, the extent of equality and employment opportunity. All these drive down fertility rates, they drive up social kind of inclusion, they drive up growth, they drive up harmonious societies. You are not incentivizing those kinds of outcomes because you don't give any money based on that. So you need to fundamentally rethink. So I agree that the states are getting more and more disparate. They were designed disparate to start with because you divided them on language. But the economic and the outcome in, in every way, in demographic, in social development index, in human development index, have kept on diverging aggressively. So there's some other construct beyond money that is driving this change. And I would say it is the nature of society. Those places where you focus on education, on inclusion, on compassion, on empowerment of women, those places you get good outcomes. And those places that th those are not the priorities, 
no matter how much net transfers you do of money, you're not getting the right outcomes. At least that's the theory that I, uh, I proposed to Mr. Singh. I didn't get a chance to speak to him much when he was here as chairman. I've spoken to him quite a bit since then, after I became minister. And I, I haven't had any evidence to change my view that these are the fundamental differences. Focus to the education, that is what I to ask him, because what is happening, you look at the budget allocation to education, all of the states, from center to the states. I don't know whether states are copying the center or center is copying the states. I don't know it. But the budget remains below 2%, 3% in all the states. And quality of education, of course, is bad. But quality of higher education is improving in India, but it's becoming costlier and costlier. So do I conclude that we are heading for an elitist education system where we are willing to spend 500 crore rupees for IIT, but not 500 crore rupees extra for 500 schools. Is that good financing? No, I think clearly that's not, right? And uh, I think it was this very event last year where I was on a panel where we had this discussion. And I said, if these institutions are funded by private money, the market will regulate it. But if they're funded by state money, then of course we have to ask the question, uh, what is the price we pay for a niche kind of excellence uh, group at the cost of others maybe? But I want to go back to a couple of the points you raised earlier. First, I must give a disclaimer. I'm an engineer, uh, operations research, psychology, finance. I'm not an economist, so nobody should uh, get the wrong idea. Second, I think all growth inherently tends to increase inequality, whether that's because of globalization, whether that's because of innovation, whether that's because of integration, like uh, internet integration even whether it is an exacerbation, as uh, Dr. Alwalia said, through a crisis, almost every event inherently tends to disrupt uh, what we would like to think the role of democracy is. You know, in the, in the Karl Marx view of the world, capitalism would collapse on itself because the returns to capital would keep on increasing and the returns to labor would keep on decreasing. And at some point, the workers of the world would just unite, rebel, there'd be blood on the streets revolution, and then common property would be the only way forward. I mean, very simply put. The antidote to that was democracy, that we were going to have one man, one vote, rather than rich man has greater control, etc. and then you had to stand for election every so often, and therefore you had to keep the masses appeased, and you had to keep them integrated, and you had to keep them uh, still with hope in the system. So that's what democracy is supposed to do. Unfortunately, the failings of democracy are becoming more and more evident, just like the failings of the market are becoming more and more evident, just like monopolists and cartels and oligopolists can corner the markets. Once you have enough money and enough kind of uh, access, you can actually control democracy, it seems, in many parts of the world. So that leads to this problem of increasing inequality. But definitely, at least statistically, it's very clear that after the reforms, the relative performance of states, the gap started accelerating because there is greater activity to partake in. The reforms opened up the system. They created opportunity. Clearly, those that were capable of seizing the opportunity, like Tamil Nadu, which had a very strong education base going back to the 1920s, compulsory education in the Justice Party government of 1920s, plus coastline, plus access, plus language, the Anna policy of two language, almost everybody was somewhat literate in English, and therefore that was global uh, value. 
So the reform certainly helped accelerate. But I go back to the point, I think it's not about backward states. I agree completely with my former uh, leader, the late uh, Mr. Marin, that it's about mismanaged states. Everybody has human potential equally. It's the kind of values that the government uh, focuses on, the philosophy, the approach, and whether it is an inclusive and universal approach, and that really makes the difference. And I think that is the, you know, and it starts with education, going back to what you said. It starts with the quality of education. I'll also mention in passing this notion that freebies are the answer to every problem or that they are the root of every problem. Both are misguided. For example, Tamil Nadu has one of the highest per capita incomes, has one of the highest gross enrollment ratios in education, also has one of the you know, highest subsidies. I won't call them freebies because it's a meaningless term, but something given at low cost or no cost. We give uh, maternity kids to all women. We give free cycles to girls going to school. We give laptops to students going to college. We give free uniforms. We give, these are things that we give free food. We have been doing it since 1920. These are investments in our future. We don't consider them as just random freebies, right? So it's not the terminology or the cost of it that makes the difference. It is the attitude, the philosophy, the, the political underpinnings that drive policy and planning. That's what makes the difference, I think. Everybody's worried because Tamil Nadu, we are there, reforms everybody talking about. And Tamil Nadu has been in the beginning, historically, it's been one of the most educated in terms of development and whatnot. But I find in terms of either doing business, somehow it seems that you are lagging behind. In the sense there are about 26,000 rules and regulations which are criminal laws. I'm told Tamil Nadu tops in there where the businessman can be sent to jail on 1,000 counts, there are processes there. 1,000 laws that they have to be, they can be arrested, sent to jail, and you are much higher in that. Why that is? Because reforms is not happening. Why those legislations are not being dropped and restudied and whatnot? Yeah, I, listen, I, I have not done a comparative study. I've, I've only ever lived briefly in Bombay, uh, Mumbai, and the rest of my time in India in Tamil Nadu. So I don't know what the relative ease is in different states. On an absolute basis, we are very clear that there's a lot of red tape, unnecessary red tape, a lot of greater um, ease of doing business required. I'm not so concerned about the laws about people sending, going to jail and all that because I can't think of any instances. If you have many cases of actual businessmen being jailed, you tell me. But the law, just because the law is on the books doesn't mean it gets actually applied. That's a different story. But we are 100% clear. We have to make it a lot easier for people to do business. Not just the global corporates and the big companies, but for the MSMEs. So we have a task force that has been set up just for that after we came to power. So you are making Simply, it a one economy as the chief responds. Yeah. We, you we can't can, have a criminal law than one trillion economy. Yeah, I completely agree. So we, you know, I mean, again, it's not just because we're going to one trillion. We have a philosophy that the government should not be onerous, should not be red tapeish, that it should be easy to do business and we are on that path. Maybe the need to get to one trillion in 10 years and therefore achieve, I don't know, 14 and a half, 15 percent nominal growth a year gives us greater impetus to clean it up more quickly and more thoroughly. But philosophically, we are very much inclined to uh, removing a lot of these archaic constraints and freeing up the market. Yeah. Since time is running, I'll ask the last question. What is your expectation from the central government? 
because there's always problem. I want this money, that money. What do you think? Give one model which is acceptable. Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, I actually go back to Dr. Aliwalia's point. I think at least the large rich states, there are a lot of things we can do ourselves. I became finance minister in May. I didn't go to Delhi for the first time till December 30th. I had no need to go and ask for anything. I, there were a lot of things in my control that I could do and I'm comfortable and in 10 days when we present the budget, you'll see that we have outperformed by any stretch of imagination, by any measure. We have phenomenally outperformed not just the last 10 years of Tamil Nadu, but certainly most states in India. I did that without needing to go to Delhi. So that's not as if we are all expecting Delhi to be our savior or anything like that. Right? But what we expect from Delhi is fairness, predictability and a good partnership that allows for independent decision-making. This notion that you can control everything from, from one place. We have just gone for 20 minutes talking about how diverse states are, how different the conditions are. Why do you presume that you can come up with one homogenized program sitting in Delhi and implement it across 1.4 billion people of such great diversity? It makes no sense. So just allow us, I mean, I don't want to go too far, but let's say I went back to, uh, to Delhi about 10 days ago. I had some meetings with the finance secretary, finance minister, and very courteous, very nice people. But I brought up a technical point, which I have not talked about publicly, but I'll say it now. So they tell us that there's this thing called a borrowing limit, right? And it's based on the FRBM Act and our respective acts and all that. But let's just take for now, it's 4.5%. Question is 4.5% of what? So when we set our first budgets, we take 4.5% of the CSO's estimate of what our GSDP is going to be, and we set that as the uh, borrowing limit. Then midway through the year, we get a revised estimate. Like now, we are 11 months into a 12-month year or 11-plus months. So the CSO has updated that number. So when I present the revised estimate in 10 days, I'm going to take 4.5% of that GSDP. But if you look at the actual amount the union allows me to borrow, that number is about six or 8,000 crores less than 4.5% of what the CSO says my GSDP is going to be. So then I ask the question, why do you artificially come up with a different number? You know what the answer is? That when you add up the state's GSDPs, they are greater than the national GSDP by about 5%. And therefore, to set the total borrowing of all states into some number that the rating agencies will like, they cut our borrowing limits down. I mean, this is crazy. That means that if Tamil Nadu is investing seven or six or eight thousand crores less, the, all the states together, we're investing 50,000 crores less in capital investment this year because of this artificial construct. How many more jobs we could have created, how much more growth we could have achieved, and this has been going on for many years, right? So why do you put these artificial constraints on us? We are not like school children to be tutored by you how to run our lives, right? We are showing that we can do better than the Indian average in almost any statistic. Let us run our lives, we'll show you good results. If anything, let others emulate what we can teach them and we'll learn from others who do better than us, right? There doesn't have to be one kind of universal hand, right, on this. Thank you, much. I wish all the finance ministers of the states had the same clarity which you have. Thank you very much for coming here. Thank you very much.